Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have um, a text before us this morning that requires uh, diligence and hard work, requires understanding, humility, and a deep dependency upon you. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would Give us your heart and your mind as we look at this text. Help us to know what it is that you're saying to us through it. And I pray that you help me to clearly identify, um, Lord, what this passage says and to put it in the context of both our present day need and also um, a pastoral heart of love for our people. And I pray that you would add your blessing to your inspired word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that I think that every one of you should take a vision trip is because there's something incredibly valuable, in fact, I would argue maybe even life-transforming, eye-opening, about being in a completely different culture with people who love the same Jesus. They sing the same songs, but they couldn't be more different than you. It's just remarkable. It's it's, it's eye-opening because you see something about the body of Christ. You see that people are people whether they're here or overseas. And you also see that the Bible is the Bible, whether it's here or overseas. But you also see that there's continuity and discontinuity within the body of Christ. In other words, there are things that are just the same. You you export from Carmel, Indiana to Lagos, Nigeria, and it's the same. Or things that are radically different in terms of discontinuity, things that are just so differently done, you, you almost don't have a category for them. I'll give you a few illustrations of experiences that I've had in my own life. In Slovakia, I remember being in a uh, seminary class and being taught by a conservative professor um, some incredibly important doctrinal truths, and he was doing a phenomenal job. And yet in the room were pastors whose part of their salary was paid for by the government, and the seminary was in a state-sponsored university. Didn't have a category for that. Or, take another example. Um, In the country of uh, India, you have the same Bible, oftentimes the same songs being sung, but while I was preaching, it was clear, you have men on one side of the room and women on the other. I mean, it's just just remarkable. In Togo, West Africa, uh, same Bible, same songs, but they sing them a little differently. A little more actively, I think some of you may have begun to get the rhythm of that in the first uh, first song or two, but the reality is there's a lot more activity, even congregational dancing, so to speak, but here's the deal. Every woman in the church has a dress on. 
give you one more. In Mongo, Togo, northern Togo, these missionaries up there are looking to plant a church eventually. But for the first four to five years, they're not sharing Christ aggressively at all. Instead, what they're doing is just simply moving in among the people, trying to learn their culture and, and figure out how to do life with them. So the reason I share those things is to illustrate the fact that there is this continuity and discontinuity within the body of Christ. There are some things, in missions it's particularly important to think through, some things that are essential and other things that are incredibly flexible. Flexible. There are some things that are biblical principle no matter where you live and other things that have a cultural context that changes everything about how you express it. That's true in missions, but not just in missions. I would tell you that every church in every culture in every era has had to wrestle through this continuity and discontinuity tension. The challenge is the fact that the Bible was written in a very different time period and in a completely different culture. And therefore, it's important that we start out this morning by just thinking about how do we understand the Bible? So even though it's written in this different culture and a different language, yet there are many things that transcend time and culture. And and this dynamic, this transcendence of time and culture, presents a very important matter for us to think through, and one, frankly, that we face head-on in our texts in 1 Timothy 2 over the next two weeks. The Church of Jesus Christ has been and continues to be comprised of two genders, male and female, men and women. There's the continuity. And yet here's the rub. The rub is that while men and women have always been a part of the body of Christ, what they should do or what they shouldn't do has changed culturally. And the critical question that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, is this appropriate? Is this okay? Additionally, we have to ask another question. The question being, what principles, what concepts, what ideas transcend time, culture, and eras? And and honestly, candidly, this is one of the most difficult and yet important interpretive decisions that you make when you study the Bible. And it's one that we face in our texts today and also in next week. The reality is, when do you make the decision something is transcendent of time and culture, and when is something simply applicable only in a particular snapshot of time or particular people? I mean, just just think of all the questions that are raised by this text. Let me list them for you. I think it's helpful to be honest with the questions that you should have when you heard this passage read. Questions like, are men required to raise their hands in prayer? Is a woman doing her hair or wearing jewelry improper? What does it mean for a woman to learn quietly? What does it mean for a woman not to teach or to not have authority over a man? Are women more easily deceived than men? And how in the world are women saved through childbearing? Some of you may wonder, did you know what you were doing when you chose to preach on 1 Timothy? (laughs) And the answer is yes. Did you know this text was coming up this Sunday? Oh, yes, I've known about it for a while. And so have some of you. (laughs) Because I've received emails. What are you going to do with this? This is a very... In fact, some of you may have woken up this morning and go, Aha, here it is. Others of you have no idea that today was going to be the day. And when the scriptures were read, you were like, Oh, my word. Right? (laughs) Today's going to be fun. (laughs) At least for you, right? So... (laughs) 
So before we get into the specifics of this text, let me just overview um, a couple things about how we, how we ought to think about interpreting the Bible. So before we even get into this, I need to lay some really foundational work about how do you think about thinking about a passage like this. Now, I've been extraordinarily helped by the comments of John Stott in his commentary on 1 Timothy. And in that, he lays down and summarizes two key principles when approaching every text, but specifically these texts. Here's the two principles. The first one is the principle of harmony. The principle of harmony. Meaning that the Bible, as the written Word of God, has a unity to it such that God doesn't contradict Himself. Although the Bible has a rich diversity to it in terms of language and culture and and authorship. Although there's this rich diversity to it, there is an underlying consistency which requires us to interpret every text in light of the total biblical context. Look at a text, you look at the chapter, you look at the book, and you also look at the biblical theology woven throughout the entire Bible. This, incidentally, is one of the weaknesses of expositional preaching, going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Although I love that method, it's our steady diet, there is a weakness to it. The weakness is, is that you get so narrowly focused on one text that you forget the broader dynamic of the whole. You can be so isolated in your understanding of one passage that you neglect the harmony, the bigger picture message. Therefore, it's really important when looking at a text like this to see the bigger, consistent themes that are part of the Bible of which this text is a part. So verses 18 to 15, if you took them independently, if that's all you heard, in fact, this is your first day in church and this is the text we're on, I don't want to apologize to you, but I want you to know there's a lot of other things that the Bible talks about. But if you just heard this passage or just used this text, it would almost seem as if the Bible's a bit chauvinistic and that women somehow are not even full image bearers or are less than fully statused people in God's kingdom. A failure to understand the whole could cause you to take this passage so literally that you could draw wrong conclusions and even justify wrong behaviors. For example, you could take 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about head covering for women and make that a biblical mandate that all women should wear some sort of head covering or shawl. So it's important to understand the harmony and its importance, or you can make some errors. The second principle is the principle of history. So on the one hand, we have the principle of harmony. On the other, we have this principle of history. And this means that the Bible was not written in a cultural vacuum. But rather, it was given to a people in a particular setting, in a particular context, during a particular time. Therefore, every text has a cultural context such that God's Word is incredibly relevant to the issues and the lives of the people to whom it was written and also to us. This is a great mercy that God didn't just write a series of principles or series of maxims, but instead really applied the Word of God to real scenarios in real people's lives. He stooped to address our issues, and therefore the Bible is incredibly relevant. It was written to be practical. However, that poses a unique challenge in that you have to determine the transferability of things that are cultural commands and transfer those or not transfer those to our present day context. Now this is really hard work because not only do you have to understand what was happening in the Bible times and get that right, but you also have to know how to link it to today. 
And a failure to do this well could result in either wrongly prescribing something the Bible intended to have limited application, saying that everyone must do this when the writer of the Bible was simply addressing an issue in that context, or you could so over-contextualize a passage, looking at all the data, all the background, that you end up taking away really important truths that were intended to transcend time and culture. So you have errors and challenges on either side. You could so analyze the culture that you could take away really significant and important truths. There's a a movement today to do this with the sin of homosexuality, to suggest that we ought to view it differently in 2012 because our culture has changed. So the principle of history is really important to think through and to handle it well, lest you take important truths that transcend time and end up somehow relegating them to be contextually unapplicable. The challenge here, friends, is significant and important. As an interpreter of the Bible, you have to take cultural and historical background. You have to take biblical theology. You've got to compare different uh, passages against one another. You have to do exegetical work as to what the passage means. You've got to figure out what words mean. You've got to determine the intent of the author. And you put all of this into consideration as we figure out what difficult texts like these mean. It is hard work. But I hope that you see the value of difficult texts like this. You see, hard texts are in the Bible for a reason. Not only to give us instruction, but also, I think, at times to humble us, to make us realize that this is hard to understand what God's Word says. So, as we approach our specific text today, it's important to distinguish between two things. It's important to distinguish between those things that are directly transferable. You could take what Paul says and just bring it right over into 2012 and to distinguish things that are contextual. And I'll show you today, I think, that with each section that we'll look at today, there are commands and there are contexts. And once you understand the command and the context, and granted that's an exegetical and interpretive decision, I think the passage can be then unpacked. So we have to ask ourselves what things or principles transcend culture and what things or principles need to be seen in light of culture. And I think our texts this week and next have both in them. It's not all command, and nor do I think it's all context or culture. I think there's both, and that makes this a challenging text to wrestle with. So let's start in verse 8. Paul is talking here about instructions for men and women. Culture and time may change, but the reality is is the church has always been comprised of two genders, male and female. Now remember that this entire chapter, chapter 2, was all about regulating what worship should be like in this church. Paul has given very specific instructions regarding whom they ought to pray for and how they ought to pray. And specifically, he's addressing in this passage some challenges that were apparently emerging within the context of this local body of believers at Ephesus. And as a result of trying to address those issues, Paul gets very specific with instructions to men and women. Now, he gives them different instructions. So it's important to start from what they share in common and what is their commonality between male and female. There are many things that men and women share in common. For instance, both men and women are made in the image of God. Both of us equally share in what it means to be an image bearer. No one has less image. Men aren't made more in the image than women are made in the image of God. As well, both genders are equally sinful. 
men are sinful, and all God's women said, and women are sinful, and all God's men said, all right, that wasn't so good, so we'll try, yeah, all right, no one wants to go there, and both, by the way, need forgiveness, all God's people said, that we can agree on, joyfully so, good, yes, and we all receive forgiveness through Christ, both men and women are spiritually gifted, both are filled with the Spirit, both are given unique gifts to be able to be used in the body of Christ. And it's important to start here because in the Roman and Jewish world, women were considered intellectually second-class citizens. And so the Bible comes in and clearly elevates the spiritual value of women, even identifying that there's something more important in life than just male and femaleness, and that is one's relationship to God through the person and work of Jesus. So what that means if you're here today, and this is the very first message that you're hearing at College Park Church or the first time in a long time that you've been back at church, here's the deal. We're talking about men and women, but at the end of the day, what makes us real, whole, full people is that we are children of the King saved and bought by the blood of Jesus. So I just want to tell you, if you're a man, you're only living half-hearted, a half-hearted life if you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior. Same thing if you're a woman. You're living a half-hearted life. The life that God's intended for you is a life that's reflective of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And your wholeness as a person is reflected not only in male and female, but more importantly in what it means for you to be a child of God through Christ. Now while there's many things in common, the Bible also identifies that there are clear and important uniquenesses between men and women. In the same way that there is a equality of essence but difference in personality role and function within the triune god there is equality and uniqueness between men and women it's part of the design part of the design of creation part of the design of men and women it's a part of the created order i would call this a complementary uniqueness meaning that men and women complement one another that enhance both the benefits and aids in our expression of what it means to be God-honoring people and human beings. The reality is there's differences. No matter how hard I tried or wanted, I could never give birth to a child. (laughs) There's differences. No matter what I wanted to do, which I wouldn't want to do, but if I wanted to, I couldn't do it anyways. Maleness is maleness and femaleness is what it is. And as a result, men and women are also given different commands regarding marriage in terms of their priorities, regarding uh, different levels of accountability before God, and also, interestingly enough, different consequences because of their failure in Genesis 3. So men and women have different roles, and they also have unique challenges and unique struggles. So while there's so much for which we should be thankful that there's equality, there also is difference that ought to be celebrated. And in that difference, there are unique struggles and unique challenges. And so every once in a while, a pastor will give broad general instructions for a congregation. And then every once in a while, he gets very specific. And what Paul does here is he gets very specific for what men and women should do. So in the midst of all the commonality and all the continuity between men and women, Paul helps us to see two things to think about, one for men and one for women. Here they are. The first, verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the first thing we see is his command here is men pray with conviction, not friction. Verse 8, 
The command here is regarding prayer. And notice first that Paul says that he desires this. This is more than just, I would like to see this happen. This is an apostolic command, an authoritative instruction. This is the way that the church should be. He longs for this, this prayer, this men should pray in every place, that this should happen everywhere. This doesn't mean just the city of Ephesus. He's, he's In light of chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, Paul is longing for prayer to be expansive in, in everywhere the gospel would go, that the church would be able to conduct itself in a way that would reflect the heart and the beauty of the body of Christ. So he wants this church to be filled with prayer, and he specifically wants men to be sure that they are praying, listen, the right way. So this is a text about praying the right way. And here now we come to our first interpretive fork in the road. With each command that is given, there is a principle or command that has a contextual expression. And what Paul does here is he gives us a command. The command is this, that men should pray without anger and quarreling. That men should pray without friction. That's the command. But the context of it is lifting hands. So, within this text, there's both context, things that were culturally informed, and then things that are command, things that I think, things that transcend time, culture, and eras. And in this passage, it's men should pray without friction, the context meaning they should lift their hands. So his point is, is he's concerned about the heart of these men. The posture, their hands, is secondary and cultural. The command here is not to be caught in the trap of praying in the corporate gathering of God's people while being involved privately with inward quarreling or external anger. Paul is concerned about actions that would be hypocritical or inconsistent. He's concerned here about the attitude of these men. The the sin of dissension, the sin of quarreling about controversies is a common theme in this book. We heard this beginning in chapter 1 and verse 4 where Paul warned the church about unhelpful speculations. And as well, we'll see in chapter 6 that he talks very specifically about false teachers who create constant friction. And so apparently there's this regular anger friction thing that's going on in the context of the church. And Paul says that men ought not to pray this way with angry and quarreling hearts. So the statement then, lifting holy hands, was a cultural expression of how they physically prayed. It's not an apostolic command that this is how you should pray, not saying you must pray with lifted hands, because then you might think then the men would be off the hook if they prayed with angry hearts, but their hands were down. Clearly, and that's obviously not the case. That would miss the point. Paul is addressing an issue here that's not exclusive to men, but is very prevalent with men. He's warning them about their anger, their contentions, or their friction between one another or even their wives, and that this can affect their prayer life. Now listen, this is not the only place that this theme emerges. 1 Peter 3, 7, listen to this. It says that husbands ought to live with their wives in an understanding way, which means to not be harsh or filled with contention. And here's why he says this. Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, if you have a harsh, angry spirit, the text says your prayers are hindered. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives. And then he adds this, and do not be harsh with them. As well, a qualification for an elder is not to be self-controlled, not violent, is, is, 
Elders are, are to be self-controlled, excuse me. They are to be not violent. They're to be gentle and not quarrelsome. Men, let me, let me speak frankly with you. Anger, harshness, over-directness, and general grumpiness. These things come from a desire to get what we want. As I understand James 1.20, anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So what is anger? You know what anger is? Anger is an attempt to be in control. Anger in its active and passive forms is really an attempt to be God. Think of the times that you've gotten angry. You've gotten angry when something stood in your way. And so in order to get your way, to make things happen, to have somebody listen to you, you get angry. It's an attempt to rule our own lives. Now, it's not that women are given a blank check on being angry. They're called to not be angry as well. But the verse particularly focuses on this issue with men. You see, spiritual leadership and anger do not go well together. And I believe that one of the strategies of the enemy to try and keep men from fulfilling their God-given spiritual role, or at a minimum to try and discredit them in their attempts to be the people that God wants them to be, is to trap men in disqualifying and discrediting anger. I mean, seriously, do you respect somebody who's constantly angry? Kids that grow up in a home with an angry dad, do they, do they respect what dad says? They fear him, but do they, do they trust him? Are you willing to be open with somebody who can't rule his spirit? You see, Paul wants men who pray with conviction, not with friction. And he's addressing this particular issue in this particular church. And I think the Bible here gives us some help as to what all men ought to think about. We are called to pray with conviction, not friction. Now, secondly, here's what he says to women in verses 9 and 10. He says this, that women should be known for good works, not just good looks. The second issue relates to women and their appearance. It seems as if there were some women who were conducting themselves in such a way that it was proving to be distracting or perhaps even destructive in this church. Therefore, Paul has some very pointed pastoral instructions as to how women ought to think about their participation in worship services as it relates to their appearance. Now, it's interesting that Paul begins by saying in verse 9, likewise, meaning in the same manner that he has just issued a caution for men, he's now going to issue a caution for women. And once again in this text, we're going to see this pattern of command and context, that he offers a specific command and then sets it in the context. And I think the command here is that women should be modest and have respectable apparel and be self-controlled. That's the principle. The contextual issue, or the context, is not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. In other words, I think that the principle is modesty and self-control, and the context that he zeroes in on is the braided hair, the gold, and the pearls because of what those things meant in that particular culture. So again, it's not that Paul's down on gold or pearls or costly attire, although he might be, depending on what all of that means. Let me show you this. There are um, three words that are important to note here. The first word is the word respectable. 
He says, likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. The word respectable means that which is appropriate. And in this context, it seems to mean appropriate in light of a worship service. It, it means that a woman should dress in such a way that, the, that reflects an intentional focus on God and not on herself. Respectable. It's appropriate. Secondly, the word modesty. This word has some additional meaning connected to it. It's more specific. It is used for discretion when it comes to not dressing in a way that is seductive or suggestive. So there is a sexual context to what is communicated here. It can mean shameful or disgraceful. I think you know what this means. The kind of appearance that, frankly, is embarrassing to be around. Embarrassing to oneself or embarrassing to others. And I'm sure you've had this thought before that you were around someone and you were just like, my word, how can that person not be embarrassed with how little clothing she has on? And you're embarrassed and you wish they were a little more embarrassed. And and that's the idea of modesty. Third word is the word self-control. A woman's appearance is to communicate that she has prudence, that she has discretion, and that her morals are in control. Dressing in a way to intentionally attract attention, dressing in a way especially to attract sexual attention, is not fitting or right, especially when it comes to worship. And so here's the thing that Paul acknowledges that we all know, and that is that the way that a person appears and how they dress sends a message. And the question is, what message are you sending? So these women were becoming a distraction by their appearance and it was causing a problem and a needless distraction and a wrong focus in the worship service. And that's the command. That's the principle. Dress in a way that's respectable, modest, and demonstrates self-control. Then Paul gets very specific. He gets very specific, talking about braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. And he does this, I think, because... Often, distracting, divisive, or inappropriately dressed people need specifics because they don't think that such, a, uh, such commands apply to them. I have found this to be true that when attempting to dress either in a school ministry, a youth ministry, a church ministry, whatever, that broad sweeping instructions regarding things regarding uh, uh, modesty or self-control often go in one ear and out the other, the very folks that you wish would hear. And oftentimes it takes a loving brother or sister to sit down and just say, look, that is just not acceptable. And to do it in a loving and kind and gracious manner. But the fact of the matter is, is that without some level of specifics, this would not have been heard. And so Paul then lists the contextual specifics of braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. Now, why does he choose these? Well, because these things was reflective of a kind of style. There was something that this braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire was a marker for. It was either a symbol of flaunting one's wealth or a symbol of moral looseness. So it wasn't just that braided hair by itself was bad or pearls or gold or costly attire, but when you put it all together in their present culture, everyone would have known what those things indicated. It seems that in this culture, women would make a fancy show of their hair. I saw some 
pictures from ancient artifacts and things of that sort. Think like either a beehive with pearls in it, okay, whatever, you know, or uh, think, think like long flowing hair with embedded gems in them. And it wasn't that the braiding of hair or the gems were necessarily wrong, but it was what they were a marker for. This unusual display in their context was meant to attract attention. It was used to flaunt their luxury or in the city of Ephesus, the style was used by prostitutes to flaunt their sexuality. So, so this appearance was code for something else. There was a group, either wealthy or loose people, who were driving this style, and therefore this style said something in their culture. I mean, we understand this, don't we? I mean, what drives the style in our own culture? It's, it's unfortunate, but true, that often fashion and style are driven by people whose lives, morals, and marriages are light years away from godliness. So the night I was watching the news with my wife and some starlet was in big trouble and I just said, can you believe that these are the kind of people who define culture and that were even interested? How did this make the nightly news? I mean, certainly you would be mourning if that was the story of your son or daughter. You'd be mourning the fact that this person's life is a mess and yet here they are defining what is the style of how we look. Just, just think about it for a moment. That the famous people or immoral people tend to set the trends for our culture and yet they often have very tragic and messed up lives. Let me just, just say this very gently but ask you to think about what are you seeking to communicate by the way that you look? Think of the implications of dressing up or not having enough on such that you look like a prostitute. And the reason, I think if we're honest, that a person goes there is because somewhere dark and deep in the recesses of our hearts, we want to be noticed, we wanted to be treated special, we like to receive the attention that we crave. And yet in the midst of all of this is the gospel that says, why would you want to be like that when your wholeness is defined by who you are in Christ? Boy, it got quiet in here, didn't it? (laughs) Let, Let me speak to young men and young women. Young men, be sure that you define attractive very carefully. Many a man has fallen for a seductive woman only to discover the emptiness that comes with it. And young women, let me caution you and exhort you to define beauty carefully. Because while men are certainly responsible to guard their eyes and their hearts, you also have a responsibility for what you flaunt and reveal. The issue here, friends, is not braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. The issue is what those things represent. And in each period of history and in each culture and in each setting, one has to have the wisdom to know what is respectable and modest and self-controlled. The principle is modesty, self-control, and discretion. The context is gold, braided hair, pearls, and costly attire. So... These are the principles that should guide our conduct. Paul is not suggesting here that a woman should be entirely out of touch with what is fashionable and contemporary. So take a breath, ladies. I'm not asking you to get your mom jeans out, your your culottes, parachute pants, and big 80s hair, okay? We're glad those days are gone. Here's what Paul wants. He talks about it in verse 10. 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. When you wait, good looks and good works, it's the good works that should be the essence of beauty. It reminds me of what an old woman once said. She said, pretty is what pretty does. And know how right she was. In other words, women are to be known for their good works, not just their good looks. So let me just ask you. Women, does that characterize you? What are you known for? What do you want to be known for? What do your Facebook pictures say about you? What goes through your head when you stand in the closet, especially on Sunday morning? You see, God wants men who will pray with conviction. He wants women who will be known for good works. God wants to put away, wants us to put away friction because that hinders prayer. He wants us to put away seeking attention through appearances because that leads to distraction or worse, moral disaster. So, a few pastoral reflections on this text. Now that we've looked at it, let me give you some conclusions from this passage. First, we should be really grateful that the Bible speaks so specifically and in a manner that is relevant to all of our lives. We we have a, a Bible that speaks very specifically to where we live, and I am so grateful for it. Studying this hard passage made me love the Bible even more, that it's a precious gift, and it never ceases to amaze me how relevant this book is in our lives, even though it was written so many years ago. Secondly, Looking at hard passages like this is humbling and hard work, but it's worth it. And I hope that you're grateful to be in a church where we don't just duck around a passage like this, that we deal with it carefully but candidly, and hopefully clearly. You may not agree with what I've said, but I hope you don't leave here wondering what I said. We have to work hard to determine the meaning of the text in light of its biblical and cultural context, and frankly, I think... It's a pastoral disservice to you to not try and wrestle with this passage, even if I woke up this morning and thought, whew, today's going to be an interesting day. Third, men and women have always been a part of the church of God, and they are a wonderful complement to one another. The church needs both men and women, and there are beautiful similarities that we share and commonalities and a continuity that we share together in many, many wonderful ways. But fourth, there are also unique differences between men and women. Differences do do not make one gender superior to another, but differences that help us to realize that men and women face unique challenges. And before God, we both have to do our part in order to walk in godliness and self-control. For men in this passage and in this situation, it looks like praying with conviction and not friction. And for women, it sounds like being known for good works, not just good looks. So finally, what do we do with the next verses? They say this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Instead, rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. What do we do with this text? Well, for the answer to that question, you're going to have to come back next week and find out. Father in heaven, thank you that You have given us such important passages that um, cause us to humbly seek your mind and your heart to know what we ought to do, how to live. Lord, I pray for men who 
not only need to not pray with anger, but they need to be moral, self-controlled, and modest. For the concepts apply to them in a different way. I pray for women who not only need to be modest and self-controlled, but need to put away anger and grumbling and quarreling and dissension. So, Lord, in many respects, this passage in various ways applies to all of us in different phases of our lives. And yet, very specifically, I pray today that you would cause some men to say enough with this anger, enough with this quarreling. My prayer life, my relationship with God is hindered. And I pray also for godly, contemporary women who will see the value of moral discretion, self-control, and purity, and make it not their soapbox to look at other people, but instead to make it a platform upon which the gospel is proclaimed. That our wholeness comes not from beauty or from our personality, but it comes from our relationship with Jesus. So, Father, we need the rugged reality of what it means to live out Jesus in our world, and we pray that you'd help us. We thank you for this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, you may be here today. You need someone to pray for you about something going on in your world or something else. These folks are here to pray for you today and to bless you. All right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.